Well, good afternoon and uh, welcome to Living Hope Church, particularly if this is your first time uh, with us. My name is Mitch Spence. I'm one of the uh, elders here. And you join us uh, right at the very end of a series in John's Gospel. For one last time, uh, John chapter uh, 21. It's been uh, two and a half years on and off uh, in John's Gospel. And we finally made it uh, to the very end. It's a long passage, as you've heard read, and so when I uh, pray for us uh, as we begin this afternoon, let me pray. <clears throat> Our Father in heaven, you sent your Son into the world that we might see and believe that he is the Christ, and that by believing we might have life in his name. And so, Father, help us now by the power of your Spirit one last time in John's Gospel to see the glory of your Son, the Lord of life and to help us to believe in Jesus today and to keep believing in him tomorrow. Give us ears to hear his voice and eyes to see his glory, that we might come to him in faith and repentance each day, every day. In his name we pray. Amen. Uh, please uh, do forgive me. I've had a little bit of a cold this week, and so you can kind of uh, hear some of that uh, coming through the mic as we go. And so if there is a little bit of a sniffle or a need to drink some water, uh, you'll, know, uh, you'll know why. <clears throat> I've said it before, but there is, there is something about Jesus and mealtimes in the Gospels that make for profound drama of eternal significance. Had these meals taken place in our day, your social media feeds would have been blowing up with content. Just think about it. John chapter 2, the wedding at Cana, where Jesus steps in to spare the blushes of a disorganized bridegroom and ensures that the wedding goes deep deep into the week because he turned copious amounts of water into wine. John 6, out in the bush after a long day in the heat. Heat, not a pick and pay in sight. People are tired, people are hungry, and Jesus takes one boy's lunchbox and feeds a crowd of 20,000 men, women, and children from two fish and five loaves. John 12, a whole dinner party, is brought to a standstill as an unnamed woman gate crashes an exclusive party and breaks a jar of perfume over Jesus' head, preparing him for burial. We estimate that that jar of perfume cost her 30,000 US dollars in real terms. John 13, no miracles, no lavish perfume, but a wedding, I mean, a washing ceremony where Jesus takes the place of a lowly servant boy, doesn't he? and he washes his disciples' feet. One of his closest friends makes a deal to have him murdered, and in that event, Satan himself pulls up a seat to the dinner table. And then here in John chapter 21, it's breakfast time. The useless disciples, they can't even feed themselves. The risen Lord Jesus shows up and provides a feast enough to, to feed an entire town. And if that wasn't enough, exhausted, sweaty, and smelling of fish, the starving disciples find a bry already waiting for them on the seashore. There's something about Jesus and mealtimes in the Gospels that provides for profound drama of eternal significance, and that is once again absolutely the case with our passage today in John chapter 21, the final chapter of John's Gospel. And so please don't, please don't switch off thinking that this last chapter is, is dominated by kind of pleasantries and closing remarks that don't really matter. Because the future of the human race depends on what takes place here in John chapter 21. Our eternal future depends on John chapter 21. 
And the chapter is dominated not, no, by, the, by the issue of food. Verses 1 to 3, the disciples have none. They can't even feed themselves. Verses 4 to 14, the risen Lord miraculously feeds them with more fish than they can carry. Verses 15 to 17, three times Jesus calls Peter to feed a starving world. And verses 18 to 25, Jesus, Jesus shows us that the disciples are his authorized food aid program to end world hunger. And so I've titled the talk Feast or Famine, because that is what is at stake in our passage today. It's a life and death situation. Either we all starve and die, or we are fed and live. And it all rests. It all rests with a rather useless bunch of disciples led by Peter, arguably the most useful, useless of them all. Will they finally get it together? Will they finally get their acts together? Will they understand? Will they grasp? And will they bring an end to world hunger? Or will we all starve and die? And hunger is a huge problem the world over, is it not? According to the World Food Programme, 783 million people across our globe, roughly 1 in 10 people across our planet, suffer from chronic hunger. Maybe I'm showing my age, who knows? But as I was growing up at least, <coughs> Um, uh, Miss Universe beauty pageants became quite a thing, uh, particularly in the, the 90s, and now I am showing my age because I know some of you weren't even uh, born uh, then, uh, but the Miss Universe pageant became a, a huge thing. And one of the questions that contestants always got answered was, and so Miss USA, if you happen to be crowned Miss Universe, what are you going to achieve? Cue a short pause, and then a very rehearsed answer. From, I'm sure, a very well-meaning 20-something-old, blonde from a small town in Arkansas. Classic answer. I'll do my very best, my very best to bring world hunger to an end. That was a good case to be made. Uh, she didn't quite grasp the full gravity and scale of the problem that she thought she could solve in one year with a nice smile and some blue eyelash, uh, blue eye, um, uh, blue eyes. But it shows, doesn't it, that one of the greatest social concerns the world over is hunger. Think about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. It's brutal, it's bloody, it's incredibly divisive, I get that. But as always in the case uh, of things like this, one of the main kind of travesties, one of the main, I think, um, uh, tragic realities, uh, particularly in the kind of escalating humanity, humanitarian crisis, is the lack of food for civilians caught in the middle of the crossfire. I speak to almost any kind of uh, NGO involved in uh, conflict areas, and at the moment they'll say to you one of the biggest problems in, uh, in Gaza, at least, is the problem of food. And some people will starve and die as a result of that food. And they'll say to you that the need is urgent, it's now, it's a matter of life and death. Hunger is a huge issue in our world. But it's not just a physical ailment, as we'll go on to see this afternoon. There is a spiritual famine that we all face as sheep in a desert. And if we aren't fed, if we don't get food, then we face death. The fate of the human race, the spiritual fate, rests with today's passage. Will we or won't we be fed? Feast or famine? And so the passage begins, doesn't it, with the spotlight kind of on Peter. And we all remember Peter, right? Big talk, 
brash claims, but an utter failure, isn't he? An utter failure as things got real. All the way back in John chapter 13, verse 37, Peter stands up in front of everyone and, and kind of makes that gallant claim. He says, doesn't he, Lord, I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. And then John 18, whilst Jesus is being tried and about to be crucified, Peter is standing out in the cold, in the dark, at a distance, warming himself by a fire with the servants. And in the face of a lowly servant girl, he can't find the courage even to be associated with Jesus. And then in 1827, Peter again denied it, and at once the rooster crows. Peter disowned his best friend when he needed him most. He's a failure of a disciple. He even gets beaten by John in the running race to see the empty tomb. Did anyone ever notice that in John chapter 20, verse 4? He gets there second, which is last when it comes to a race of two. And why they even include that detail, I don't know, other than to show just how much of a failure Peter actually is. They both set off at the same time, maybe slightly overweight, I don't know, but he gets there second. He loses even that race. And the same Peter is hiding behind closed doors with the rest of his friends, terrified of what's going to happen to them when the risen Lord appears to them. He appears to them in the flesh and he transforms their fear into peace. And then he gives them a job to do in chapter 20 and verse 21. If you have a Bible, then you can click here with me. In 20 verse 21, Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. They've just seen the risen Jesus, who is clearly now both Lord and God. He commissions them to be his agents in the world, much the same way that God the Father sent God the Son into the world. And no sooner have they received their kind of official mandate than Peter pipes up in John 21 verse 3, Hey, I'm going fishing. I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we'll go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Sounds like just about every fishing trip that I've ever been on, if I'm honest. <coughs> but don't miss the drama here. Because John has been carefully arranging this material to help us see that this is one of the lowest moments in the history of the church. As the disciples, Jesus is commissioned to agents in the world rather than cracking on with the work that the Father has given them to do, are thinking about their stomachs. They're hungry. And so they follow Peter into a boat, spend an entire night slaving away in the dark. But in the end, in the end with absolutely nothing to show for it. And so not only are they utterly useless bunch of disciples, but they were once skilled fishermen, commercial fishermen. And now it seems that they are useless at that as well. Breakfast is approaching, they are starving, and they can't even feed themselves. Peter and his friends, handpicked by Jesus to be the future leaders of the church, and even after his death and resurrection, they are still clueless. If they have a job to do in the world, and it has anything to do with providing food, then it's looking a lot more like famine than feast at this point in the story. But then they hear a voice calling to them in the dark, verse 4. 
and I think it is dark. I think it's uh, early morning. Daylight hasn't yet been, uh, hasn't yet broken, and so they don't quite know who it is. But verse 5, Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. And our English translations, I think, here hide the tone of Jesus' actual question here, because it's, it's more of a condescending statement than a polite inquiry. Jesus knows that they don't have any fish. He is Lord of life. He's just risen from the dead. He knows exactly what's in their boat. And so the tone in the Greek is more like something like, Hey, oi! I'm guessing you don't have any fish, do you? Just try the right side of the boat, you rookies. And when they do, they catch so many fish that seven grown men can't even pull the nets into the boats. They catch more fish than their boats can carry. All of a sudden, they have plenty to eat. They've gone from famine to feast in the blink of an eye. And it takes John, uh, John, uh, to kind of join the dots for Peter, doesn't he? And the rest of them in verse 7. That disciple whom Jesus loved, so that's John's way of speaking about himself, he said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put, out, put, put on his outer garments, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. You can just imagine John's mind kind of ticking over. Wait, uh, we had no food, no fish. We were exhausted and starving. And then out of nowhere, this man produces more food, more fish than we could possibly eat in one setting. Why does that that ring a a bell for me? Where, Where have we seen that happen before? I suppose there was that one time where Jesus said... 20,000 men, women, and children with five loaves and two fish. It's the Lord. It is Jesus. And Peter makes the connection after John, doesn't he? And he does the exact opposite of what we would all do. He puts on his clothes and then jumps into the water. Most of us strip at that point and jump in, but not him. He puts on his clothes and Peter jumps into the, the sea. He goes for a 100-meter dash to shore. He's not going to be beaten to Jesus a second time. He's going to be ahead of this group of disciples, right? And, and I've always thought how poetic it would have been. How poetic it would have been if, as, as Peter's kind of thrashing away at the water, the boat kind of sails on past him into shore. But it doesn't, does it? It doesn't pass him. Why? Because they're wrestling a ton of fish. The world record for a Mediterranean red snapper is 22 kgs. And I know this is Jesus, and I know you can do anything, but let's just assume that let's just assume that the average weight of the fish that the disciples caught was half that size. Okay, so large fish, half the world record. That still means they're wrestling a net that's about 1.5 tons in weight. It's a lot of fish. I've just bought a ton of coffee. It took three of us and 18 kg sacks to bring that coffee back. It took about two days to go and get it. It was heavy. And here they have a ton and a half of fish live that are wriggling and they cannot get it to shore. They can't feed themselves. But the risen Lord provides a feast of epic proportions. And as Peter gets to shore, he finds a bride, doesn't he, already waiting for them. And it's a bride done the right way, isn't it? wood and charcoal. There's no gas uh, here. And the fish are already sizzling away, probably a pinch of salt and a squeeze of lemon. And surprise, surprise, 
loaves of bread, verse 9. And with it, the invitation comes, verse 12. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Come and eat. Peter, useless disciple, hopeless leader, failed fisherman, can't even feed himself, but the risen Lord Jesus can. Wet and cold, now warming himself by a very different fire. Exhausted and starving, and given food by the hand of Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. The prospect of famine is transformed into feast. At the beginning of this, a new day, a new world, a a new creation, as the Lord of life reveals himself. And this theme of feast or famine, feeding and food, is then explained in the conversation, I think, between Jesus and Peter in verses 15 to 17. It's a conversation of only a few sentences, not many words, but a lot of repetition, that centers on love, food, and sheep. As Jesus asks the useless Peter in verses 15, 16, and 17, do you love me? Do you really love me? And the threefold repetition is of course no coincidence. The same number of times the failed disciple denied his Lord, and it cuts Peter deep, doesn't it? Verse 17, Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, Do you love me? The coincidence is not lost on Peter, is it? Three times Peter replied, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And I think it should be obvious to us what's going on here. The useless disciple, the failed friend, the hopeless leader, is being reinstated by Jesus, not because he has anything to offer, Not because he brings anything to the table. He can't even feed himself, but rather in spite of his failings. And precisely because he has nothing to offer. The risen Lord calls him on three occasions to feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Each time Peter responds to the question, doesn't he? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus insists over and over. Feed my sheep. Save a starving world. And this conversation, I think, is probably the most important conversation ever had between Jesus and Peter. Between Jesus and his disciples, for that matter. Because the eternal future of the human race, of you and me this afternoon, hangs on it. And so we should be highly interested in this conversation and what goes on here. But at the same time, let's be careful not to jump out of the the audience and into the narrative as if we're one of the main characters sitting around the fire with Jesus that day. This is Jesus, the great shepherd, the chief shepherd, giving his kind of handover pep talk because he's about to return to his Father in heaven. And so our interest in this passage is not because we ourselves are in the passage. Our interest in this passage is not because we identify with the failures of Peter, although we do. Our interest in this passage is not because we identify with the disciples as the followers of Jesus, although we do. Our interest in this passage is not because Jesus provides abundantly for his people, although he does. Our interest in this passage is, as a friend says, a friend of mine says, is because we are just out of picture, over the hill, in a paddock somewhere, feeling hungry, and making the noise, We are the sheep. 
our interest in this passage is because we are the sheep living in a desert who will certainly die. John 21 is not an anti-climax, a few niceties and some closing remarks. Rather, this chapter contains a food miracle, 153 fish, and a threefold command to do some feeding. But the task of feeding, which we know is the biggest task in the whole world, is given to a useless bunch of disciples who fail at every turn. They can't even feed themselves. And so we should be really concerned. Has Jesus got this right? He's given this group of people the biggest task in the world to feed his sheep? They can't feed themselves. Has he got it right? And it should be of concern to us because Peter and his equally useless sweaty friends are your only hope of food and mine. That's who those disciples are to you. That's who they are to me. We are the sheep. And the connection between food and survival and life, I think there's a connection I don't have to work really hard to to make for us here in Zimbabwe, is it? Just looking at the forecast for Bulawayo the next few weeks, it's not looking good for rain, is it, this year? It's looking pretty bad. They're already late. And we all know that bad rains bring droughts, and drought brings famine, and famine brings hunger, and hunger brings starvation, and starvation ultimately brings death. Maybe not to many of us here, maybe not to any of us here, but each year in our nation there are millions of people who live with what the World Food Program calls food insecurity. The 2022 Global uh, Hunger Index classified Zimbabwe as um, the 13th worst nation globally. Basically, millions of people around us live in hunger. And in a bad year, thousands will starve and die. Feast or famine, food is a life and death matter. And of course, Jesus is speaking metaphorically when he says, feed my sheep, isn't he? He's not meaning that we are actually sheep. But all the way through John's Gospel, we've been seeing how he is the big shepherd, the good shepherd, the chief shepherd. And he refers to us as his sheep. My sheep hear my voice and follow me. And so he's meaning to his disciples, isn't he? Go and bring life to those who are starving, to those who are dying, to those who are sheep in the wilderness facing certain death. Unless, unless you bring them food, unless you feed them. You see, when your tummy rumbles, it's not, it's not really a notification that the preacher has gone on too long. It might be that. But rather, it's a message. It's a signal from your, bo- your most kind of basic physiological need that you are dying. And if you don't get food, you will die. And apparently, as uh, kind of, uh, adults, we can go about 13 days without food before we die. And one day we will all die physically. That is a reality that we all face. But on another level, another level, a deeper level, Jesus says that we're all dying spiritually. We are sheep who need to be fed. We need to be fed the word of life, or we will spiritually die too. And John's Gospel has been all about life, hasn't it? It's been about eternal life. It's been about Jesus who brings that eternal life in his name. Again, if you have a Bible with you, just turn to John chapter 1. This was a long time ago for us. 
uh, but John chapter 1 and verse 1. And just notice the connection between the words, which is Jesus, and life. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He, so the word is a person, was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him, that is the word, was life. And the life was the light of men. There is the connection between words and life. Jesus, words, and life. Here the disciples are being commissioned. They're being sent out to bring food aid to a starving world. And that food aid is to take his word, his life-giving word, to a world and to feed, to feed his people. Well, in verses 18 to 25, we learn that Peter and the apostles are, I think, authorized by Jesus to take this food aid to a starving world. They are his official partners, if you like, if you like, in bringing hunger to an end. Verses 18 to 19, I think Jesus tells Peter that he's going to make good on his promise to one day lay down his life for Jesus. And Peter ends up dying on a cross for proclaiming the gospel to a starving world. Peter and the disciples are reinstated. They're authorized, they're official partners worthy of carrying this, this message, this life-giving world, word, to a dying world. And it's interesting because in John's Gospel, the way that we receive life, as we saw a few weeks ago, is through death, but not our own. Through the death of another sheep, another lamb, on a cross who poured out his blood for the sake of the world. We can come to Jesus, the Lamb who died in our place, that we might live. And in this day and age, I think it's easy, isn't it, to focus on the physical. It's not to say that it's not uh, tragic and it's terrible, but just to kind of either turn a blind eye or forget the reality that actually we're all dying spiritually, whether or not we have our tummies full. And here in John chapter 21, not closing remarks, not niceties, Jesus gives the disciples a huge task of feeding a dying world. And so two final implications, I think, for us. First implication, get fed. You ever seen those uh, video clips uh, when food aid enters uh, a portion of the world where people are starving? And the kind of manic scenes that unfold as people uh, kind of wrestle to get hold of that food. And I think it's just easy, isn't it? In a place like Zimbabwe, where, where Christianity is kind of so um, um, normal, so accessible, so free that we take that for granted. Here, the, the priority Jesus is saying is as sheep who need food to get fed, to make sure that we continue to, to be fed by this word. It's one of the reasons why here at Living Hope Church we make such a, a priority of teaching and preaching the Bible, God's word, his spiritual nourishment for his sheep, that we might not die but have life in his name. That's why we preach through books of the Bible like we have through John. That's why um, uh, we use Bible study to actually look at the Bible and hear what God is saying to us through his word and by his word, to be fed uh, by him. Because without food, the inevitability is death quite easy, isn't it? Uh, a lot of, although I don't see any of them here today, but chicken farmers in, a, in our part of the world, 
and chickens die of a few things, one being heat, but a lot of them just lack of food. And they're very fickle, a little thing, sheep. Um, human beings, slightly more precious. But the reality is the same, don't feed and we die. And so implication, get fed, prioritize being fed with God's words. Join us each week on a Sunday, join a Bible study uh, uh, group uh, midweek. Uh, prioritize spending time in God's word yourself in the mornings, in the evenings, whenever it is that suits you. But be sure to be fed. And I think in our context, as we're saying, isn't it being fed with your the kind of um, the word of the apostles, these apostles, the twelve disciples? They are the ones who are recommissioned, reinstated by Jesus. They have the life-giving word. And so prioritize the Bible. But implication two, and this is where I think some urgency needs to come on our behalf. On our behalf, take food aid. Take food aid to a starving world. Take spiritual food to a starving world. We all know people, don't we? Family members, friends, our work colleagues, who don't yet know the Lord Jesus, and who, spiritually speaking at least, are dying. And Christmas is a wonderful opportunity, is it not? To, 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 to bring people back to hear the gospel, to invite people along to something like a carol service, which incidentally is here next Sunday afternoon. We'll see you all there. Bring as many people as you like. But let's be those who, who are not just feeding ourselves, but who are then taking that food to those around us, who are taking God's words, who are encouraging one another with God's words, who want to see us all continue to grow and to um, have life in the name of Jesus. And so let me pray for us as we close. Our Father in heaven, we thank and praise you that even on this uh, hot afternoon, uh, we hear your words, and by your spirit we are revived and refreshed. We are fed. We are given life in your name. Our Father, we pray that we are those who prioritize, who delight in your words, who see the real importance and necessity of it, even for ourselves, but then for those around us. Father, we thank and praise you for people like John, who recorded your words for us, who took this commission seriously, who, who have given us food, life-giving nourishment to feed our souls. And so, Father, we pray that we take the privilege that we all have here in Zimbabwe, take it so seriously that we love coming to your word. We love being fed. In the name of your Son, we pray. Amen.